Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapter 3. As we continue our studies, although it's going to be a very short study through the book of Jonah, it's just two pages in my Bible. So we're going to look at chapter 3 this evening, chapter 4 in a couple weeks' time, and then after Jonah, we'll do Nahum, which is a prophecy concerning Nineveh, uh, perhaps 20 or so years later from Jonah. Uh, But we'll look at Jonah 3 tonight. Uh, The God who forgives will read the entire chapter, which is 10 verses. So verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach uh, preach it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth, from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, But neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let every one turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? And God saw their works that they had turned, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful that you are the God of justice and you must punish sin. We're also thankful that you are the God of mercy. And thank you that you are merciful to the people of Nineveh. You are merciful to Jonah. You are merciful to the mariners in chapter one. And you are so very merciful to us. You've removed our misery. You have not given us what we deserve. And you've given us so much that we do not deserve. And may we remember this, may we ponder this often and think about the blessings that we have in you, grace, mercy, forgiveness, uh, all sorts of wonderful things that we take for granted. And so we are thankful for what you've done for us. Thank you for Christ and his finished work. Uh, Thank you for the blessings that are found in him. Thank you for his dying and rising again, that we might have life uh, in him. And we pray that we would know more of that tonight, know more of your forgiveness, know more of your kindness as we come and consider your mercy, even in this Gentile foreshadow concerning the Ninevites. So we ask that you give us illumination from on high to better understand some difficult things that are said here. Give us wisdom, give us illumination, and may we give you glory and praise and honor. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, it's no surprise that the world we live in is filled with people who do terrible things because we live in a sinful, fallen, perplexing world filled with so much vanity. And our thrice holy God, because of his perfection, cannot but punish, cannot be angry in his perfect anger toward a wicked sinner. And God one day will judge all on that final judgment day. He will render people their just due because of who he is. Now he will render people their just due for their sins. And that will be a manifestation of his justice. 
But thankfully, we'll also see a manifestation of his mercy on that final day as well, on that judgment day. Those who deserved everlasting judgment receive everlasting life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the God of justice is also the God of mercy, and he is the God who forgives sinners of their great sins and great wickedness. We've seen this with the mariners. We've seen this with Jonah, and we will see it with the wicked city of Nineveh this evening as well. God saves those who are once enemies and reconciles them, and they become friends. This is something that we need to be reminded of day by day. This was something that Israel at the time, which was a wayward, wicked, divided nation, needed to hear as well. Remember, the prophet Jonah is during the 8th century, probably around the same time as Amos and Hosea, to the northern kingdom. Remember, it's the divided kingdom at this point. He's a prophet to the northern kingdom. And as you remember, all of Israel's kings did wickedness. There was no king who did right uh, in that northern kingdom and under the divided uh, nation of Israel. It was a dark time, lots of wickedness, lots of disobedience, uh, but Jonah receives a unique call. Most of the prophets have their call and they remain in Israel, but Jonah had a unique call to go, to go to Nineveh, to go to the enemies of the people of God and go and proclaim to them concerning uh, judgment, but also concerning mercy as well. And as we saw the past couple of weeks, Jonah doesn't want to do that. Jonah flees. Jonah runs away. Jonah is eventually cast into the sea by God. Uh, that's how Jonah portrays it in Jonah 2. Jonah cries out to God in the belly of the, uh, the fish. God delivers him by vomiting out of that very fish. And really, the whole book is structured under two main sections, Jonah's resistance and Nineveh's repentance. And it's all about God's sovereignty over the nations and God's mercy toward the nations as well. God's glory is not just for Israel. And so we come to that latter section as we see Nineveh's repentance. So in the latter two chapters, we do see Nineveh's repentance proper, chapter 3. Then we see Jonah's anger concerning that in chapter 4, which we'll see in two weeks' time. Now, I think the one problem that emerges very clearly here is the wickedness of all mankind and the judgment that God shall bring because of that. All man was born in sin because of Adam, and all man was born in sin and misery. Man in his sin freely rebels and goes against God most high because that is his nature as he's born into this world, and God has a righteous judgment that he will render. One day that day will come. One day Christ shall come back and judge the living and the dead. The question is, are you going to be in Christ or against Christ? Have you believed upon him by faith, or do you continue to rebel and reject the Lord Jesus? If you believe, mercy. If you reject, righteous judgment shall be upon you forever. And we learn something about God's mercy and justice in Jonah chapter 3. And so in re and the main emphasis is his mercy. In Jonah 3, we see God's mercy is on display as the Ninevites repent. So it's all about God's mercy, all about Ninevites repenting. That's the emphasis in chapter 3. And we'll look at this under two headings this evening. First of all, when the prophet obeys, verses 1 through 4. And secondly, when the Ninevites repent, verses 5 through 10. So when the prophet obeys, verses 1 through 4, 
And secondly, when the, uh, when the Ninevites repent. So let's first look at when the prophet obeys. And this parallels with chapter one, where we saw when the prophet flees. And there's a lot of parallels with what God said to Jonah in chapter one and what God will say to Jonah here as well. Remember the context. God has called Jonah. You go to Nineveh. And Jonah goes the opposite way. He goes down, 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 rather than going up, up, up to Nineveh. He goes the exact opposite direction, away from God's call and away from the so-called presence of God. And as Jonah finds out, one cannot flee from the presence of God. God in his being is everywhere present. The question is, is it his favorable presence that's upon you or his unfavorable presence, whether it's in Christ or not in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as Jonah is going down, down, down after he's cast into the sea, he cries out to God and God delivers him. Only the God of heaven and earth, only the Lord of Israel is the God who is merciful and so god even to jonah is merciful to him merciful to save him to vomit him out of that fish the fish was not his salvation if he describes the fish as him going down 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 crying out out of the depths but god delivers him as he vomits him out of that fish but we also see god's mercy by telling jonah a second time go and do what you're supposed to do verse one Then the word of the Lord, same language, almost verbatim as chapter one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. So he gave him that first time. Now it's his second time. Restoration. Jonah, you still got to do your task. Verse two, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. That's all pretty much the same we saw in chapter one. But notice one difference in verse two and preach to it the same, the message that I tell you. In chapter one, he says, their wickedness has come up to me, go to them. But here he highlights the emphasis about the message that must be proclaimed. It's the same command that God gave to Jonah the first time. It's going to be the same problems Jonah is going to have. The Ninevites are still the enemies of the people of God. Jonah's still not going to like that. And we see his anger in chapter four, but he must preach the same message. Jonah cannot preach his own message. Jonah must preach the message that God has given to him. He says very clearly, the message that I tell you. Jonah doesn't like the Ninevites, and yes, he's going to preach judgment, but he cannot overly chastise them. He cannot overly chide them because he can't stand them. It's the opposite of evangelicalism. Evangelicalism likes to water down the message. Jonah might have put a little bit more oomph to it or a little more fire to it because he didn't like the Ninevites. I'm just speculating, but we know he just does not like them. But in any case, the prophet must speak what God has said jonah cannot preach his own message but only what comes from god most high and then notice in verse three after the word of the lord has come to him finally jonah jonah obeys it took a lot didn't it i mean fleeing and going to the ocean and being in the belly of a fish and again it wasn't just a chill time in the belly of the fish i mean he was in the belly of a fish used to watch Superbook as a kid, so my images of Jonah are just him praying there and the fish like that. That's probably not what's going on. Again, there's probably a lot of nastiness down there. He refers to it as his dying. Uh, And so God saves him out of that, and he is going to obey finally. God is so very gracious to us, uh, even to give us severe 
severe disp- um, uh, providences to show his displeasure. So uh, verse three, Jonah arose. He finally goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And then we see a description about Nineveh at the end of verse three. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. Uh, The reference to three-day journey in extent describes how big the city was. Probably what it means is that the city is three days in length wide or how big it is. That is, if you lived in the suburbs, it takes you a day to go into the center of the city. You had one day then to do your business and then one day to return. That's probably what three days in length refers to here. It highlights the size of that city. So one day to two days of travel, one day of business. What's interesting, and I don't like the translation of the New King James here, when it says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. In the Hebrew, it says, now Nineveh was 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 a great city for God. It's God's city. It's not Sennacherib's city. It's not King Paul's city. It's God's city. And one of the things that Jonah, the book of Jonah emphasizes is God isn't just the Lord of Israel. He is the God of heaven and earth. He is the God over all things. Yes, he chose Israel as a special people and entered into that old covenant with them, but he is the God of heaven and earth. That's what Jonah confesses. And again, it's kind of a bad witness because Jonah's fleeing. But in any case, he says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah learned you cannot flee from him. And the Ninevites need to learn they cannot flee from him. The Ninevites need to understand that God is God overall, but also the Israelites need to understand that God is God over all. And I think Sennacherib, if I remember reading the commentaries right, Sennacherib, who comes later on during the time of Hezekiah, and he taunts Yahweh, he taunts Israel, he taunts Hezekiah, he says, Nineveh's my city. What's God say here? Nineveh's God's city. God is the one who raised it up. God is the one who put it where it was, and that should give us comfort as we see tyrants raised up and tyrants brought down as we live in situations where we're concerned about leaders. It's God's country. It's God's world, and the city of Nineveh belongs to him. Now, Nineveh was a great city for God, to God, which was then three days in length. And one thing that's interesting is when Jonah is ref- is speaking to God, uh, it's probably Jonah uh, writing this in the third person, but he talks about how it's the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name for Israel. But when he speaks about it concerning the Ninevites, it's God, Elohim, God, uh, God over all. So he comes, enters into this great city that belongs to God. He begins to cry out and preach in verse four. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. So he enters into the suburbs, doesn't take him one day to get into the center. As soon as he enters the suburbs, he preaches. As soon as he enters in, he proclaims what God has for him. And all that's recorded concerning his message, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The image here of overthrow and the language of 40 days uh, should con- or should uh, cause the Israelites to remember Uh, times of judgment in their history. Judgment is on display here. Judgment is in view here. And certainly we could add the idea if they, uh, unless they repent, which we'll talk about when we get to verse 10, but yet 40 days 
and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Judgment, doom, and gloom. And the, lang- uh, the, 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 the number of 40 days should recall some important moments uh, in certainly world history and in Israel's history. 40 days and 40 nights. That was with the flood, wasn't it? And that was a time of judgment. Or how Moses went up to the Lord for how many days? 40 days and 40 nights. And then you have the golden calf scenario that happens during that time. And there is some judgment upon Israel. Thankfully, God relents. God does not destroy them. That highlights his mercy and his compassion. He doesn't destroy them after Moses intercedes. Uh, But judgment is in view. So 40 days ought to recall times of judgment. Same with the language of overthrow. The language of overthrow is used when referring to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. There's a great picture of what judgment day shall look like, right? It's referred to, it's uh, also used in Jude as an image of what hell shall be like. And uh, it's it's a description or in in, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is another sign of God's judgment. So it should have been in view uh, for the people of Israel. Remember, it's not just teaching uh, uh, Jonah about God's mercy to the ends of the earth, but it's also a bit of an indictment against Israel who was not worshiping God. And we'll talk about that more when we get to the king. But remember, during Jonah's time, Israel was violating the covenant. Israel was going against God. They were worshiping the Baals. They were worshiping the Ashtoreths. And God's a God of mercy, but he is also the God of justice. And Israel should have known better. But that's his message. 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I think one thing we can take away, and a lot of the commentators highlight this, is we must preach the message that God has given to us. And this is important for the church of Christ. We must preach the message that has been handed down. We're not supposed to water it down. We're not supposed to make it palatable. We're supposed to preach what God has laid forth in his word. I know there's some periphery non-essential things we can differ on, but we try to preach the whole counsel of God, namely, specifically, Christ and him crucified, Christ living, Christ dying, and Christ rising again. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the gospel that was handed down. John also speaks often about the gospel that was handed down in 1 John. We see in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul refers to preachers as ambassadors, That is, ambassadors who speak on behalf of somebody else. That is, the message that a preacher is supposed to proclaim is not his own, but it's supposed to be from God Most High. The prophet was supposed to preach the message given by God, verse 2, and the church is supposed to preach the message given by God. We're not supposed to change it. We're not to make it so it's according to the whims and wishes of men. Paul warns about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. In his dying day, the last thing that he says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, or one of the last things he says, I charge you, therefore, before the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead? That is what one thinks concerning the message of the gospel has end time everlasting ramifications. Christ shall come and judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So what then ought we to do? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort 
with all long-suffering and teaching. Why? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. We're supposed to preach the whole council, even the bad news. <laughs> Notice when Jonah walks in, it's kind of hellfire and brimstone, isn't it? You see, we need the bad news. You're a wretch. You're sinful. I'm a wretch. I'm sinful. Judgment is coming. Flee it to, in Christ. The bad news must precede the good news. Both go hand in hand. Yes, the hellfire brimstone sort of preaching you can't stop at that. It needs to move into Christ and his forgiveness and God and his mercy. But if someone doesn't see their sin, they're not going to see the need for Christ. And the Bible speaks often about when the purposes of the law, Ten Commandments specifically, it's meant to be a tutor, a child tutor, to drive us to Christ. Because as we read the law, as we think of those Ten Commandments, and we think about how much we fall short of that, where should it drive us? To Christ. Paul says, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 3, uh, Romans 7, and Galatians chapter uh, 4 as well also speaks about that. I think 4. No, maybe it's 3. I think it's 3. It changed my mind. It is 3, how he speaks about it. It's a tutor uh, concerning Christ and driving people to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need both the good news, but we also need the bad news as well. Ferguson says, our God-given task is simply and directly to teach God's word and truth for our contemporaries, not to water it down, not to make it palatable, not to preach less because people are you know, able to focus less. No, we must preach the whole counsel. God may use us and our testimony as he pleases, but we have a responsibility to make his truth as clear as we are able. We might get some things wrong, you know, we're still here as sinful human beings, but we preach Christ as we are able. Not what our, me our message is, but what Christ has said, what the word has said. That's what we must do. So that's when the prophet obeys. May God's people obey. May the church as a whole obey and preach Christ and him crucified. Let's then move on and look secondly at when the Ninevites repent, verses 5 through 10. It's really quite astonishing, isn't it? <laughs> how quickly they repent and how they believe. So we see the language of believe and repent. So verse five, the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Jonah spoke about judgment. Perhaps he said more than just verse four, but verse four at least is the summary of what he said. Jonah spoke about judgment and they believed. Now, one writer isn't convinced that perhaps it's a true uh, belief, but I disagree. And because uh, several reasons, one, the way the word is used, and also two, their actions, and three, the way it's used in the New Testament. And I'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, but we see here, Nineveh believed. And hopefully your attention was drawn back to Genesis 15. What does it say there? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
and perhaps Israel, again, they need to be reminded about the patriarch and his faith in God's word, that the Israelites might trust in God's word, not in the Molex, not in the Ashtrafts, and not in the Baals. But here we see the Israelite or the Ninevites, they believed God. So the word itself indicates that, but also their actions. They put on, uh, they proclaimed a fast. Fasting is done when there's great times of sorrow. Uh, they put on sackcloth and ashes, uh, sackcloth, and we'll see ashes, signs and examples of their repentance, sign of mourning. Remember this morning we talked about clothing and how clothing, uh, we, it's unfortunate, but we make judgment calls based on what people wear. But sackcloth and ashes would have been a sign of their repentance, a sign of their mourning, a sign of their concern. And it was remarkable because it was a message of judgment. And Gil kind of in a funny way speculates that Jonah would have been a sight to behold as well. Gil says Jonah would be quite a sight to behold. The digestive juices of the fish would have turned his skin to a most unnatural color. And his hair was most likely all gone. Indeed, anyone looking at that would attract your attention and you'd give his message more credence, especially after he told you what had happened to him. A God who creates storms, prepares large fish to swallow a man and preserves him in the fish, would not likely have too much trouble destroying your city. A remarkable message, but also a remarkable witness as well with Jonah, who just came out of the fish and just seems to have walked into that city. I don't know if he just walked into that city or had a shower. I don't know. But Gil seems to think he just uh, went there. But in any case, if he had proclaimed and told what had happened, here's what God can do. So the people believe, uh, but also notice the king believes, verse 6. So the king proclaims a fast, and the king uh, is also... um, uh, he puts on sackcloth and ashes, verse 6. And the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So his response, uh, again, it's a three days journey. Perhaps, again, might it was not Jonah, but he heard it perhaps from somebody else. Word travels quickly. Uh, he hears it. He changes his clothing, and he, verse 7, he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, here's what must happen. Here's the message, changes his demeanor. Here's what all the people must do. Let neither man or beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Excuse me, do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? There's going to be a lot of things that are difficult about verses 6 through 10. Hopefully we'll be able to do our best with them. But some things are very clear. One, all must cry out to God. Some things are more important than food. The judgment of the city is on its way. So everything in that city must not. Second, all must yeah, so all must cry out to God. And second, all must repent from his evil ways. There is this recognition that they are pretty wicked people. And uh, there are stories in history that highlight that. Nahum, as we'll see, highlights that. Uh, some of those things as well. They did terrible, awful things. They're perhaps... Uh, history perhaps teaches that when they carried people away, 
they put their hooks through their cheeks and that's how they carried people off in chains. So they, they knew how to be brutal. They knew how to do terrible things. They knew how to do wickedness, engage in wickedness and do awful, bloody, terrible things to other human beings. And what does it say? Let everyone turn, turn from his evil way and from the silence that is in his hands. When we think about the doctrine of repentance, it's a gift that God gives, but it's usually a sorrow over sin, but a change of mind concerning that sin. And really, repentance is something that happens in here and in here. It's a change of mind of what sin is. It's awful. It's terrible. We turn from it, and then we believe and turn to, by faith, the living God. So repentance is, you know, a lot of people highlight how repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin when it comes to a one's conversion, turning from and turning to a sorrow over sin and fleeing to Christ to, uh, to, to where it's our salvation lies and so we see that a sorrow over sin this this turning from uh their sackcloth and ashes are a fruit of repentance not the same as but a fruit of uh but they were called to repent all must repent from his evil ways and turn from it and then verse nine the question who can tell if god will turn and relent or turn and have compassion and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish we've already seen this play out a little bit remember the mariners in jonah chapter one they cry out and the captain comes to jonah and says call out to your god uh so that we might not perish well there's a god you can call out to that you might not perish and they say is there they call out to who can tell they don't know uh what's interesting is jonah's not interceding for them here it's the people and the king who are interceding who can tell if god will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish there is a god to be feared and is the god of israel who is the god over all now one thing that's interesting we need to highlight about the king and one of the reasons I think the king is mentioned isn't just because he's the king in Nineveh, but perhaps it's a bit of a foil to the king in Israel. The king in Israel at this time would have been Jeroboam II. You all remember Jeroboam I, the one who set up two golden calves and Dan and Beersheba so that the people can't go to Jerusalem to worship. He did a lot of wicked, terrible things. He set up golden calves. Well, Jeroboam II did evil in the sight of the Lord and did all according to Jeroboam the first. This is uh, in second Kings chapter 14, where we see the mention of Jonah. And perhaps this was a bit of a char, a, a kind of a subtle dig toward the Kings in Israel. Here is a pagan who repented. Here is a pagan who called his people to look to God. Where are you? O Jeroboam the second, will you turn to your God? Will you trust in him? Or will you continue to working, uh, worshiping the gods of the pagans? There are many lessons that Israel was not supposed to miss, and we should not miss them as well. So that's perhaps why the king is mentioned. And then notice in verse 10, the response of God. And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. When it says God saw their works, it's not talking about you're saved by works. But he saw their faith and he saw their sackcloth and ashes, not just outward 
uh, but inward. Gill says, not their outward works and putting on sackcloth and ashes and fasting, but their inward works, their faith in him and repentance towards him, and which were attended with fruits and works meet for repentance, that they forsook their former course of life and refrained from it. These he saw, not barely with his eye of omniscience, as he sees all persons and things, good and bad, but so as to like them, approve of them, and accept them. And so the repentance of these men is spoken of with commendation by Christ, and as uh, and as what would rise up in judgment and condemn the men of that generation. So God sees their faith, and God relents. God turns from his judgment, and they find mercy in him. Isn't that the emphasis of this book? the mercy of God, but the way one finds mercy in God is by fleeing to him. It says, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would do bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, I'll admit that latter part of verse 10 puzzles a lot of people. It puzzles me. It puzzles a lot of theologians. How do we deal with a God who relents? Well, It's hard because there's another place in the Bible where it says God is not like the son of man who relents. Numbers 23, 19. So what do we do with that? (laughs) God is not like a son of man who changes. So how should we think about this? Well, theologically speaking, again, theology is thinking about God's word and thinking of Numbers 23 and thinking of Jonah 3 and other places where it seems like God changes his mind in his inner being. Uh, But we theologians speak about how God is speaking in the manner of men. There's no change in the inner being of God, but there's a change in the status of men before God. That is, there's a change in us before him. And we see that here. These Ninevites who were once under the judgment of God are now under the mercy of God. They have changed. God is always the God of justice and always the God of mercy. We cannot comprehend God in his essence because we would blow up and explode. So we think discursively. We only really see God in his, uh, his, uh, uh, only see God and can think of God in succession or logical order like his attributes. And so uh, it's hard for us to fathom how he is merciful and wrath at the same time. But the point is, is that they who were once under judgment are now under mercy. God is not changed. He is not affected, provoked from without, but he really removes misery. He brings about a change. And what this teaches us is something about the goodness of God. They who were once under judgment, they who were once in misery, God is merciful towards And again, that mercy is not an inward disposition, but that mercy is him, uh, or what he's doing in his mercy is removing the misery. And what was that misery? Judgment. He removes the misery of judgment. He removes the misery of uh, being overthrown. He does so because he is gracious and good to bring about the change in them. And I think, and what's interesting as well, the, typically when this word relent is used, it's usually in the context of disaster. If you do not, I will then overthrow. God must judge, but God will relent to those who repent and believe. He must punish sin, 
but will forgive those who believe. Our status before him changes. Tough stuff, but I think that's what's going on here, to think about that. He is not changed within, but he brings a change uh, within others and in uh, towards mankind. He would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Gill says, lengthy, but I think helpful, this is spoken after the manner of men. And is to be understood not of any uh, any such affection in God as or emotion as repentance, but of, of an effect done by Him, which carries in it a show of repentance or resembles what is done by men when they repent. It's to speak to us. Then they change their course and conduct. So the Lord, though He never changes His will, nor repents or of or revokes His decrees or alters His purposes. And he sometimes wills a change and makes an alteration in the dispensation of his providence, according to his unchangeable will. God, in this case, did not repent of his decrees concerning the Ninevites, but of what he said or threatened respecting the overthrow of Nineveh in case of their impenitence. If you don't repent and believe, you will be overthrown. This is similar to the Sodom and, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah situation. Remember, Abraham intercedes for them 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. If there are 10 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you, will you over, not overthrow them? And God says, I won't. What's the implication? There were not 10 righteous there. And does is the God of the, uh, the uh, what's the, the phrase? The, the God of uh the God of the of the earth judges rightly. Can he not do wrong is what's found in Genesis chapter 18. But it's true. If the people did not repent, then God would have brought judgment upon them. But God worked in them and they repented. Uh, Gil goes on to say it was his will that they should be told of their sin and danger. And by this means be brought to repentance and the wrath threatened them be averted. So there was a change, not of his mind and will concerning them, but of his outward dispensation toward them. So it was according to the manner of man, it's how God brings about and fulfills his decrees. If they did not repent, our judgment, they repented. So he did not do according to the promise of judgment for sin, because he is a God of mercy. And regardless of what you got of all that, with all that theology, the really the point is God is a God who forgives and God is a God of mercy. That's the point of what he's trying to say. That's the point of what we see in this situation with the Ninevites. God is the God who removes transgression. God is the God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. That is in Exodus 34. And the Israelites should have known that. We need to be reminded of that. And if you're an unbeliever here today, the only way to find mercy is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, his righteous judgment will be upon you when you die. But if you believe before you die, before he comes back, you shall know the mercy and forgiveness that is found in him. His message is one of mercy and salvation. Unfortunately, it's something... That the Pharisees did not understand. This is in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. We saw that last time. Uh, speaking about the sign of Jonah, there's a connection there between our Lord's dying and Jonah be, uh, jo uh, 
our Lord's dying and rising and Jonah's being in the belly and Jonah being spat out. But in Matthew 12, this is when the Pharisees ask for that sign. He calls them a wicked people, adulterous people. Christ has shown them many signs they don't believe. The greatest sign will be his rising again, and uh, many still will not believe. But notice what he says in 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. If the prophet, who is a type of Christ, who is a shadow of Christ, came to Nineveh and they heard him and they believed, how much more when the true Jonah has come? This was an indictment and a judgment against the Pharisees for not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a rejection of old covenant Israel for their failures to believe on the Messiah when he came. God is the God of justice, but God is also the God of mercy. And the way we find mercy is by fleeing to Christ through faith. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for your justice, and we're also thankful for your mercy. Thank you for the promise and the gift that it is to believe upon you. Thank you that you do say anyone who believes shall have everlasting life. We know according to your word, O oh God, that it will be those whom you've chosen before the foundation of the world, but we're thankful for the means you use to bring sinners uh, into uh, uh, out of darkness and into marvelous light to call forth your lost sheep. And we pray that you would use those means as you have given in your word. And may it be that gospel proclaimed and your spirit working with that gospel. May you bring about change in hearts, uh, remove hearts of flesh or hearts of stone and give hearts of flesh. We know that you're the one who takes dead sinners and makes them alive. And we pray that you would do, uh, do so. And thank you that you're the God who is merciful and gracious that you do remove our misery and you give us uh, joy and benefits that are found in Christ. And so we ask that we would know that, that we would remember that, and that Christ, the God of mercy would be proclaimed, but also uh, the God of justice would be proclaimed as well. Thank you that that justice uh, Christ bore upon him in our stead, uh, that in him we have mercy. So we pray that our church, that we as a people, would be a people that proclaims the whole counsel of God that does not water down the message. Uh, but we pray especially that we would preach a Christ, a God uh, who forgives. So give us comfort, give us encouragement. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have. Thank you for your mercy. We pray that you would be honored and glorified in all that we do. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.